You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. So glad you're here. We're going to continue this series going deeper. And I was thinking about how we had to open up this morning, and I thought about my son, Christian. Just turned 14 thir- uh, Friday. Can you believe that? 14. Got him a ton of magic stuff, so watch out. He's going to be doing some magic stuff for everybody in the halls and everything. Some top-level stuff, too, stuff you see on TV. So tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, do one of those things where you can, like, bite a quarter in half and put it back together and all that stuff. It's really fun. But he and my mom, my parents are in for the birthday. Every time my parents come in, they start talking about this ring. There's this ring in the family, and it belonged to my uh, mom's grandmother. And it's a beautiful ring, but for some reason, she just straight overlooked me and decided that when the day is appropriate, she's going to give it to Christian. I mean, hello, where am I, right? I'm your son. But she passes me and goes straight to the grandson. And the day they decided upon is when he turns 18. So every time they get together, he calls her grandmommy. Grandmommy has this ring. She shows that they talk about it and everything like that. And what's interesting is that he really wants it. And he's contemplating, what is he going to do with it? Is he going to save it and give it to some sweet little girl? Or is he going to sell it? But right now, he can do nothing. He's powerless. And you think about it, it actually does belong to him. She's transferred ownership, if you will. She's like, this belongs to you, but it's still in her possession. She keeps a hold of it, and he has no freedom to do what he wants to with it, no power to give it away, no power to sell it. In other words, he's under her guidance with this. So as we're working through this series, we're talking a lot about law. We're talking a lot about what our relationship with God looks like, what's the basis for it, how it plays out. And Paul comes along in chapter 4 of Galatians, and he furthers what Monty was talking about last week, how we relate to God, not on the basis of law. And if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about there's a righteousness. There's a being involved in a relationship with God that is apart from law. It's not law-based. And it's not just like this checklist thing, but it doesn't come through that. It's not necessarily about earning. God doesn't even distill his relationship to you and I through law. So you can't earn it. That's not even in the question. So this idea of faith and being wrapped up in God, it's not about how you get in and it's not about staying in. It's about who is really in. Who are the people of God? Who's the true Israel? Who is the church? Who are the Christ followers? Who are the Christians? However you want to designate it. So Paul jumps in in chapter 40 and says, hey, what I'm saying is this. As long as the heir kind of like Christian in his ring, right? As long as the heir is a child, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father or his grandmommy, right? Now, this wasn't uncommon thinking in the day. For Jewish people, there was like this instantaneous moment where someone went from child to adult. And it was usually the following Sabbath after their 12th birthday. They'd go to the synagogue and the child would become a son of the law, if you will. So it was all about the Sabbath for the Jewish children. Now, for the Greek children, it was not about Sabbath. It was about ceremony. There was this uh, ritualistic haircut, if you will, where the child would go on and they would lop off these beautiful locks that he had and they would put them away. And in that moment, this son became a man, full adulthood, 
all rights and privileges, all freedoms and responsibilities bestowed on that moment. And for the Romans, it wasn't Sabbath or ceremony. It was more along the lines of a festival. You saw how they wear togas, right? Well, as a child, you would have a toga and have a lot of purple in it. Shout out to Pat Rohat. She loves purple. It'd have a lot of purple in it. But when you became an adult, you would exchange that purple toga for the white ones that you and I see and that we know is the cliche, stereotypical toga in our day. And also, if you had any kind of toys, maybe made out of wood or metal or something, you'd jack those. You'd just chuck them to the side, never pick them up again because you had moved on from childhood. You now had freedom and you had responsibility. And that's what Paul's talking about with our relationship between us and God. There was a time where God tried to relate to people through the law, and we saw that it didn't work. It didn't rule out sin. Sin continued to expand. And it wasn't God's, you know, plan to say, hey, I'm going to redeem the world through law anyway. But when the time was right, God sent his son. And he sent his son to redeem or change the way we think about that. So no longer is it about these rituals or about these one moments. Instead, it is about this faith in Jesus Christ, where you and I move on from being a child to an adult. In other words, we have freedom and we have responsibility inside of his kingdom, inside of his church. And how, what's the guarantee of that, though? We're promised that, but what's the guarantee of it? He says, well, hey, if you're a child, then you're an heir, and if you're an heir, you're an heir to this promise that God said, I'm going to make you a long time ago to Abraham. I'm going to make you my people. So you read on in the chapter, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. This is the Sabbath after the 12th birthday, if you will. God sending his son is the haircut. God sending his son is that festival. It's the ring being given to the grandson, if you will. And it's not just for Jews. It's not just for Greeks. It's not just for Romans. It's for everyone, regardless of your background, regardless of who you are, regardless of what's happened. This is God intervening in the world and saying it's not about something you can tangibly observe, if you will. Who's in is dependent upon this faith in Christ, level playing field. So when the time was right, God sent his son so that we might receive the full rights as sons. It's beautiful, if you will. It goes on, chapter 6 and 7, his train of thought, and he says, because you are sons, God not only sent his son, but he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. This spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Now, pause for a second. I don't want to make too much of this. I don't know if we can really historically say this is it. If we could bring in a Dave Schreiner or a Brad Haggard to help us unpack it, I think they would push back on the idea a little bit too. But it does have a nice ring to it, and some scholars agree, so we don't want to reduce um, the holiness of our God in any way. But a lot of people suggest that the idea of Abba carries with it our word, Daddy. That level of intimacy, that connection. So not only are we sons and heirs of this promise, but God has given us of, him very, of his very self through his spirit. And the spirit that we have, something special, 
Something significant happens to you and to me, to our status, not getting in, staying in. But once we're in, we're sons, Inherit, given the inheritance, heirs, if you will, freedom, responsibility, but also the presence of his spirit in our lives so that we can view him not as this lawmaker, but as daddy or Abba, our father. I think that's beautiful. Just one moment longer. Let me push this just a little farther. Because uh, being, you know, involved in people's lives in a deep way, being a pastor, this is one of the issues that come up. Some people don't believe in God or they have a hard time accepting God or they read verses about God as father and that strikes a chord with them because they grew up in a home where dad wasn't present and the relationship with the father was abusive, whether it was physical or emotional, and there's a disconnect there. It's kind of beautiful that Paul takes this a step further and says, well, yeah, it's not just father, like figure, like there was a male in the home. This is someone who has cultivated or at least wants to cultivate a very special relationship with you. So God no longer is saying, hey, I just want to be known as creator. I want to be known as one of the most intimate figures in your life, like a daddy. We can have that relationship. In other words, that righteousness, that being in my standing, it's not about the law. It's about my son coming into the world, you placing faith in him, and then I giving you my very spirit so that you can relate to me on this very intimate level. So checking in with you. If we need to talk after the service, you need to shoot me an email because that's where you are. This idea of God as Father doesn't resonate with you. It's a problem. I'd love to talk a little bit more about with, uh, that with you. Actually, Romans chapter 8, we don't have it up here, but Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this a little bit more, how we are able to call, uh, call the Father or the Creator daddy or have this intimate relationship with him and what that does for our spiritual psyche. So I'd love to chat with you more if that's you. So we go on. If we could go back to verses six and seven. There at the end. Since you are a son, God has made you an heir. We're everything. We're part of this thing now. Here we are. And we're given freedom and responsibility to participate. So he goes on in verse nine. Now that you know God, or rather you are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? We'll spend some time here. Those weak and miserable uh, principles. Some of your Bibles, if you're following along, may say fundamentals or something along those lines. The idea of the word is anything that's basic. And it's probably the idea of the alphabet, if you will. The basic lettering of the alphabet. But then as you get older and you mature, what do you do? You start to put those letters in certain orders and you form words. And you put those words in the certain orders and you form sentences. And then you create this conversation or dialogue with other people. So for the Galatians specifically, it wasn't the alphabet. Instead, it was the idea of the law. He goes on to tell them, he says, wait a minute. You know God and he knows you. In this very intimate way, I love it when people pray. And you can tell where they are in their level of commitment, often by their prayers. Some people get very shook up, very intimidated in prayer. Some people pray and you can tell that they've cultivated this relationship. Prayer is no longer this ritual or this rhyme to them or something they do before a meal or at church. 
it's part of that ongoing dialogue with their daddy or their father, their creator, their God, the one they serve. I think it's beautiful. But for the Galatians, what's happened here is that the law had these certain days on which these people worshipped or honored God. So he's saying, hey, we've moved on from that. Now when you get together or you gather, it is to honor your God, but you're not doing it to earn anything. You're not doing it to cultivate righteousness, if you will. You're already righteous. You're already the people. You're getting together to mature and to grow. That's why the times can vary. That's why the days of the week can vary. That's why what we do when we get together can vary. It's not explicitly laid out. It's not law-based anymore. So he says, now that you've got that relationship, why would you go back to that? And isn't that really interesting? I mean, think about it for a moment, especially with the holiday season coming up. Think about the goodwill we're going to be hearing through the carols. Even, I've been in some secular stores, and do you hear the instrumental Christmas music? And you can hear some of the carols that really honor our God, really reflect Christ in Christmas. And then I've been in a few select secular stores, and they've got it full lyrical form. And it's praising Christ the King. It's beautiful, beautiful. But this idea of goodwill, it's not seasonal. So what we're going to see happening as the weeks march in and Christmas rolls around, we're going to see seasonal church attendance. And granted, I'm not throwing punches here, but if you think about it, why do we get together? Or why do we get together in the holiday season? Maybe nostalgia, maybe sentimentality, maybe everybody does it, or that's when it's a great time for me to connect with family. In other words, there's this idea of doing it, and I I chat with people all the time in these seasons, and they come. They're not regular attenders, but for whatever reason, it's the holiday season, they're in town, they go to church with their family, and they get their worlds rocked. I believe God really speaks to them, whether it's through the worship or through the teaching. Maybe it's the community. But they get their worlds rocked. Something happens in that moment. And then they leave and they go back home. Where's church? It's not a part of their lives. But they feel good about it. Something happened and that's good. Maybe it's the camaraderie. Maybe it was the family. Maybe it was just a season. That's what Paul's warning the Galatians about. He says, are you going to go back? To that idea that, okay, yeah, you went to church, good. Now you're good? And that's where we have these mindsets that if you do A, B, and C, or if you got this little bit of, you know, maybe this small checklist that you can check off, then it does make you feel good. Or it makes you feel connected. So when we have these big mess-ups in our lives, or, not to step on toes, let me push it a little farther though, if we have these recurring patterns of behavior that are not honoring to God or these recurring patterns that just destroy relationships, if those keep coming up, but you know what? I do this. I know this is going on, but I do this. I know I, but I do this. That's off center. That's not the relationship. So I would ask you, and I've asked myself in prep of this sermon and in prep so that I could ask you. I want you to know that anytime I ask you hard questions or I say something that sounds like I'm throwing punches, I've walked myself through that and prepped to that so that I could do that. Okay, is that fair? 
Okay, I want you to know that. All right, so in prep of that, maybe you've got some patterns. There's like a double layer here. Maybe you've got some patterns in your life and you've come to know God and now you're known by God. But there's some basic patterns of communication that just aren't helpful or healthy and you haven't moved beyond those. Or there's some basic interactions with sexuality that you should have put to death a long time ago because you've come to know God and you're known by God and they're not healthy or helpful, but they're still there or they're recurring. What's stopping you from moving forward? Is it this idea, but I know I got this going on on the side, but if you look at the whole picture of things, I'm actually in church two and a half to three times a month. Um, at the end of this year, in a few weeks, I'm going to drop a big check for end of the year giving. So it kind of balances out. No, 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 no. Paul says, you've got this relationship. There's something else. Uh, let's, let's look at it like this. When we are set free from the power of law, the power of sin, death, and all that stuff, we, we know we're set free from the penalty. And I think we do a really, really good job with this. We're no longer condemned. We're, we understand that we have freedom from the power of law and its penalty that is death, right? So Romans 8.1 says, there is now in this moment, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, for you and I in this very moment, there's not even a hint, an ounce of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ah, good. That pertains to you and I. We're free from the the penalty. But we also have a responsibility. So we're also free, if you will, from the power of law. And we're also free from the power of sin. Sin is no longer your master. Sin is not my master. You and I have temptations. Will we ever be perfect? No, don't hear me saying that. We have temptations. Temptations are different from sin. But just because you're tempted doesn't mean you have to honor that temptation. You do not have to give in. Sin does not control you. You've been given freedom from the power of sin's control over your life. If you will, you have the freedom and the power to not sin. So Paul goes on in that same in 490, he says, Do you really wish to be enslaved all over again? So in a group this size, I'm sure that there's some temptation circulating in our lives. And maybe it's something from a few years ago, something that was going on, and it did have you enslaved. And it was wrecking life, and it was troublesome, it was cumbersome, it was hurting your relationships. And maybe it did some damage that you're still feeling the residue of. But you're moving on and you're growing. Great. Let's keep that ball rolling forward. Because do you really want to go back to that basic stuff? Do you really want to hang around there? Is that really what you want? Because it may make sense, especially if you can check off a few things that you're doing that's on the good side of the list, right? Let's move forward. If you need to talk about something that's happening, let's talk before you get enslaved again. There's power available to move ahead. So he goes on with his teaching. We go back to chapter 4. 
He says, hey, even though my illness, and I love this part because it's not, it's not a teaching moment, if you will. It's not Paul saying, hey, do this, don't do this. It's not working out theology. It's about the relationship that he has with these Galatians. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time in the next couple of verses. And I think it gets really pertinent and really applicable to all of our lives. He says, I had an illness, but even though I had this illness... It was a trial to you, I'll grant you. It was hard. It was, you know, the relationship had a rub to it. You did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Scorn's kind of a lost word in our vocabulary, right? Kind of devaluing. You didn't treat me with contempt. You didn't devalue me. Instead, you welcomed me. So I was asking myself this question because I do it just like anybody else does it. I have this tendency to reject people. So for Paul and the Galatians, it was this idea that he had this illness and whatever complications that was causing. He was like, you could have just said, you know what, now's not the right time. I'm not digging this relationship. You need to go plant a church over in Ephesus. But that's not what happened. This church welcomed him. So let's ask this question of all of us, not just you, but me included. Why do we reject people? heard someone frame this in a sermon one time, and they said, if you could vote someone off the island, who would it be? And who would it be for you? If you could vote someone off the island, who would it be? Would it be someone who's rich? Or someone with this weird accent? Would it be a Patriots fan? See, I play fair. Who would it be? I keep this manila folder on my desk, and I fill it up, and I got it to the right on a little stand, and it has the word in all caps written on it, GAPS, G-A-P-S. And I'm always looking for gaps between people or peoples and seeing what kind of gaps are there, why are they there, and how do we bridge them? And one that's really been on my heart lately is the gap. And I know we've got a tons, of gap, tons of gaps in our society, and we could talk about them, and we will, and we'll continue to do so. But just circulating in my heart and mind for some time now has been this gap between the older and the younger. The older and the younger. And I don't know if you see it, and maybe you don't. Maybe you're doing good work in bridging that gap, and I applaud that, and please keep that going. But I see a gap between the older and the younger. And this hurts my feelings. It bothers me. I remember being in high school, standing with a guy named Joy, Joy Kaufman. And we were hanging around. We were looking at some CDs. And there was a little ruckus in the back of the room. And there were two guys about to get into a fight because one of the guys was ripping into his peer over music. So they both were into this certain kind of music, but this one guy kept saying, that's old, that's old. And this other guy, and I know looking back, it's so petty, but this other guy said, well, yeah, but um, I've got this kind of music. I got this kind of music. And this guy would say, that's old. And he'd say, yeah, but I've got this, and it just came out about six months ago. Yeah, but that's old. It's kind of petty, isn't it? When, when did something become old? just because someone ascribes the word old. Or better yet, when did something become meaningless or irrelevant or not useful? 
just because someone uses the word old. That bothers me because I think I see the parallel in society, and sometimes that slips into the church as well. So can I ask the young people, and you can, you know, take some liberality there. If you, you want to go with the young side, go ahead. It's okay. Can I ask the young people, are you unnecessarily using that word old and ascribing it to people as synonymous with irrelevant or meaningless or useless? Is that a gap that you're helping to create? I remember being a student at Johnson. And Michelle, I don't know if you're going to be in here for first service or if you're going to be in second. If you're here, thank you so much for being patient with a young man so blind and dumb as I was. So I came out of a church tradition where we did not use musical instruments. Um, There was a wedding at the church one day. So they opened one of the side windows and they brought a piano into the parking lot so the music could come in. But we were not allowed to have music inside of the actual church building. That's the tradition that framed my faith. A few years after that, I went to Bible college in Knoxville, Tennessee. And every Tuesday and Thursday morning at 9 o'clock, we had chapel. Every student was required to attend. There were no classes. That was chapel time. And during this chapel, there would be preaching by one of the professors, great preaching. And there would be worship. And there was a full band My first semester there, my world was rocked. I had no idea what was going on. Seeds had been planted in my mind that, you know what, that is the devil's music. That does not honor God. That's evil. So for the first semester, my beautiful, faithful, stand-by-your-man bride and I would sit separated from the rest of the student body. We would meet in the gymnasium, and there were four sections, one, two, three, four, All the student body sat in the middle two sections except for these two people who sat over here to the left because I did not know how to integrate with them. I didn't know what to do. Since I've reevaluated the hills that I will actually die on. And after being involved in ministry for a little over 20 years now, I think that reevaluation is something that should happen with regularity, periodically. What is the hill that I'm really willing to die on? I also remember standing up. We sang Be Thou My Vision a couple of weeks ago. I remember being in the graduation ceremony and sitting there, and the dean of students, he was talking, talked for about 30 minutes. And all he talked about was the great praises, the great things, the great accomplishments, achievements all the students had participated and done. And then we stand up, and immediately we start singing Be Thou My Vision. And do you know the line I'm thinking about? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. We'd spent the past 45 minutes praising men, praising each other. I felt like I wanted to just take my hat off and sling it and leave. I didn't. My family was there, and I wanted to honor them. But anyway, off point, just wanted to throw that in there. What are the hills that you really want to die on? And can I ask if you want to classify yourself as the older generation? Is it time to do a little reevaluation with that? And just think, okay, over time I've come to see that I don't need to sit over here away from everyone else. Maybe I can move a little closer to the aisle. Maybe I can integrate. Maybe this isn't a hill I should die on.
I think Paul hits both groups pretty hard with one shot. 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, hey, don't, any, don't let anyone, Timothy, no one, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. That's no reason. Just because you're youthful, no one should ever disrespect you, ever. So if you would vote someone off the island, I wonder if any of us would say, millennials or the next generation. Don't ever allow that to happen. But instead, Timothy, you're not off the hook. The verse goes on. You don't let anyone look down on you because you know what you're doing. You are taking every measure you can to set an example, to set an example for the believers. And here's where you're going to step it up, Timothy. And here's where I would suggest every one of us, but maybe you give a nod to the younger generation. And we step it up in every one of these categories. I put them in bullet form, but these are the verses, or these are the words that pop up in your text. Set an example in speech, the way you communicate with each other and with everyone around you. Set an example in conduct, the way you're living your life. It should be filled with character and integrity. Set an example in the way love is passed out in this world. This one can get tricky. So show us the real way. Raise the bar for us when it comes to love in this world. Set an example for faith. Show us that it's still relevant, that it still makes sense. Show this world what faith really looks like. Show your generation faith and purity. We'll just let that word linger. We could go on for days. But he would, Paul would tell Timothy... Set an example when it comes to purity. May purity, let's not lose that. Let's not lose that. So the text goes on. Verse 16 of chapter 4. He goes on a little bit more with the uh, interpersonal relationships with the Galatians. And then he says, you know what? We've been talking about some hard stuff. I get that. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I want to spend some more time here. I'd love to preach a whole sermon about this text, but we'll move forward with it just a little rapidly. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I had a conversation with Sophie on the couch not too long ago, and I set her down and said, hey, I know what happened a few moments ago. I know that you didn't lie to me, and I know you weren't trying to be deceitful, but I, as a dad, I need to check in with you and just say this. This is a moment where I want to remind you that I, as your dad, I always need the truth. Always. Even if you're scared, even if it's awkward. As you get older, I will always need the truth. If I don't have the truth, I don't know how to help you. I don't even know that I need to help you. So always give me the truth. And when you do, I want you to know, and he used these words, I'm not your enemy. I'm your daddy, and I'm always here to help you. This is breaking down in our world. Truth gets exposed, and then people become enemies. Can I speak to the church so that we can set the example here? We've got this passage in Mark 11 with Jesus coming on the scene, and here's how we typically read it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. He began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables, and maybe you've heard the story. He gets this, like, cat of nine tails things and starts whipping people, and he's still kicking stuff over. And then he says, no one else can come in here, right? You know the story. And then we say, 
that's me. I'm allowed to have righteous indignation, righteous anger because Jesus did it. What we don't know is, or what we don't quote is a few verses before that, 1111. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. He saw what was going on. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This was his time out. He paused just because he was upset. He was, and maybe he was filled with a moment of anger or rage. He didn't act upon it. What a valuable lesson for us. Rapid fire, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Anger in itself is not wrong, but when you're angry, don't sin. Don't blow it. Channel it. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. How do you, how do you cultivate that slowness in becoming angry? It's in the text. Quick to listen, slow to speak. What two valuable qualities that we can cultivate in our emerging world. Quick to listen and slow to speak. What happens then is when truth is proclaimed and people are quick to listen and slow to speak, it resonates with them. A couple of weeks ago, uh, when we preached from Galatians 3, there was a lady on the front row here. Uh, her name is Sue. I was standing here greeting, worked through about eight or ten people, and I kept noticing her out of the corner of my eye. And she was just sitting there. I thought maybe she was connected to someone in the band. So I was working through the conversations with people, and she sat there patiently for about 10 or 12 minutes. After everyone left, I just checked in and said, hey, are you needing to see me? And she said, uh, yes. So it looked like she was a little shook up, so I walked over and sat with her and said, well, tell me what's going on. And she said, well, the past two years have been horrible. They've been awful. And I don't know what to do with them. But God is showing me, showing me through what I experienced this morning at this church, what I need to do. It was a beautiful moment. She said before church, she was driving around and she was thinking, should I go over there, shouldn't I? So she came in the parking lot. She saw someone said, hey, when does church start? They said 1045. She drove off. She felt like she needed to come back. She came back for the second service. And then she's talking with me and she says, there was a lot of stuff going on. She's trying to make sense of the past two years. But all she knows right now in this moment is that she needs to move forward and she has to get baptized. And you know, we were baptizing people left and right a couple of weeks ago, right? Wasn't that a beautiful morning? And then we had a lady who was met with the truth. And she saw that her only option, being quick to listen and slow to speak, was to embrace that truth, to accept it, and to act upon it immediately. That's beautiful. I tell you that story because I'm concerned that as we walk through some of this stuff with Galatians, some of you may be met with the truth. And it may mess with you. And it may be clear. But for some reason, it makes you feel like someone else is the enemy. And you're not quick to listen or slow to speak. And it actually wants to drive you to those old patterns. And you want to be enslaved to them all over again. And what happens? You leave and this morning was basically meaningless. Let's not let that happen to you. Let's take whatever step we need to right now, this morning, to move you forward. Father, we love you. 
We know you love us because of Jesus. So we surrender to you right now. We thank you that our relationship with you is not based upon rules. It's based upon our faith in what your son did for us on the cross. Thank you, Father, for the freedom and responsibility we have as your people. And we thank you for this moment right here, right now, where we can take the necessary step, the necessary next step to move forward so that we are really living as heirs, sons, and we can look to you and say, Daddy, Abba, Father, help us. Father, we're thankful to be here in the name of your son, Jesus. We pray and we praise you. Amen.